So, Father, we thank you that we can support uh, a ministry that has chosen to give the message of life. And that's what the church is to give. But, Lord, our culture and our society more and more uh, devalues life, is quick to take life. And we have seen millions upon millions, 60 million unborn children put to death. And we know that there is forgiveness and grace for those who have gone through that process. That's part of the message we want to give. But we stand for the sanctity of life and to choose life. And Lord, you are the author of life, the creator, and the author of eternal life. And Father, these words, even though they are written 2,700 years ago, that we know that they were preserved for us for us tonight to read and be encouraged and blessed. And, and Lord, these things that we read of, um, that can be heavy, it's not to scare us, but to prepare us. It's not to um, shaken us, but Lord, that we may be strengthened. So I pray that that happens here tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in chapter 32, what we see is, um, remember that Isaiah, we got to kind of think as we go through Isaiah, because he's given prophecy that oftentimes there's a near fulfillment of those prophecies, but also there's a future fulfillment of those prophecies as well. Isaiah can also change the subject very quickly. So as we moved into chapter 32 last time, that behold, a king will reign in righteousness is what the chapter begins to talk about. And in this, there's a near fulfillment that Hezekiah would come on the scene and he would rule. He was a good king. He was an awesome king for Judah. And revival would come because of the reforms and, and the leadership of Hezekiah to Judah to where even it affected some of the, the, those who were left in the house of Israel. Now, when Hezekiah is ruling in Judah, the ten northern tribes were taken off into captivity. The Assyrians that are the threat right now in the world power at the time that Isaiah is ministering, that they have been marching southward. They took over Syria um, in 32, uh, 732 BC. Uh, we talked about how it was the king at that time of Assyria. Tiglath Pileser was his name, sitting on the throne in Damascus. He would then, 10 years later, come in and take the 10 northern tribes, the house of Israel, off into captivity. Now, when that happened, they would take some of the captives away with fish hooks in their mouths. They were very brutal. Uh, some of them were killed, but some were left behind. And then the Assyrians would come in and they would, uh, and they would um, set up you know, uh, and live there and uh, inhabit that area of northern Israel. And historically, when you get to the Gospels, when you read about the Samaritans, the Samaritans were the result of the Assyrians marrying some of the Jews that were left behind and their offspring. So there's a lot of animosity between, as it would happen uh, 700 years later at the time of Jesus, uh, there was a lot of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. They really didn't like each other. They hated each other. We discussed that uh, going through the gospel narratives and particularly recently through Luke's gospel. But that was what was going on. But in Hezekiah's time, not all the Jews were taken off into captivity because we see, as you go to Second Chronicles chapter 
130, that he sent runners up to those tribes, some of the tribes up there, the 10 northern tribes, and said, hey, we're going to celebrate Passover. And some of them actually came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So Hezekiah was an awesome king. Great revival would break out. But this is also in chapter 32, speaking of the time, when Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to reign in righteousness. So that's dual fulfillment, a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment. And we saw that he's talking about uh, how when, when the righteous king comes and when Jesus Christ comes, there's going to be spiritual discernment. And, and also where we left off was in verses 9 through 11 that there was a complacency in the land. So let's pick it up in verse 12 once again. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars, yes, on the happy homes in the joyous city. Because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become liars forever in a joy of a wild donkey, a pasture of flocks. So what is being spoken of is all of a sudden, once again, that judgment is going to come. And uh, we see that uh, the people are going to mourn during this judgment. It's interesting that it follows after uh, he had, you know, addressed their complacency, spiritual slugginess and complacency. And it's interesting that as we know that Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to rule and reign, that as you compare it to the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, you have chapters 2 and 3. And many of you know that those are the seven letters to the seven churches. And we haven't been over it for a while. We'll have to do a study in the book of Revelation um, sometime and stop and do it. But in those letters, we see that there's application for uh, different kinds of churches. As Jesus addressed those seven churches with those characteristics, You can look at churches today and you can say, well, they're more like a church of Philadelphia or a church of Ephesus. Uh, We kind of fit into one of those seven uh, churches that are described there. Uh, It's the same with individuals as a Christian. I I can read that, make application. Jesus commending them and what they were doing well and then bringing correction where they needed correction. And I read that and I think, am I an Ephesus Christian? to where I'm working all the time and busy and standing for truth, but I've left my first love? Or am I a Philadelphia Christian that's faithful and looking to the Lord and hanging on to his word and not denying the name of Jesus? So it's real powerful to go over those two chapters. And usually uh, a lot of studies just kind of pass over those letters because they want to get to the tribulation period and all the things that are going to take place, which is fine. But they're so rich. But also Bible scholars will look at that and they will say that those seven churches represent seven heirs of church history up until the time of chapter 4, which I believe we see the rapture of the church where John says that he heard a voice say, come up here, a voice like a trumpet. And there he's standing before the throne of God. And then in chapter 5 in that heavenly scene, you see the church singing that new song. But what interests me is this, and I was thinking about it, that as you start to kind of connect the dots, that the last church that is mentioned in those letters in chapter 3, the seventh church, is the church of Laodicea. 
And they were the lukewarm church. They were the church that Jesus didn't have anything to say good about them. And they were ones that um, in Laodicea, that's where the Roman circus came. There's a lot of entertainment. People from Rome that had money would come to Laodicea to be entertained and a lot of busyness. And they were a wealthy church in that they thought that they were rich and wealthy and had need of nothing. And Jesus says, but you are poor and you are wretched and you are blind and you are naked and you are miserable. And the reason was is because you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. And it's interesting, Laodicea geographically is in that valley where Colossae was in Areopolis. And Areopolis is where hot springs were. And, and as they tried to bring the, the hot water by an aqueduct from Areopagus to Laodicea, by the time it got to Laodicea, the water wasn't hot, it was lukewarm. So as the, the people were reading that letter, uh, they would understand what was being said. And Jesus said, because you're lukewarm, I'm about ready to vomit you out of my mouth. He didn't say I'm going to, but I'm about ready to. Because you're tempted, because you're lukewarm. And then we see that's the last of the letters. And could it be that those who say that it represents different church errors, that we're in that last church error where the church is becoming lukewarm. And as I think about it here in our own nation, in our own culture, that perhaps that, that there is that danger of that. But, but we can discuss that. We can look at it. We can see how the church... Um, more and more at large, I, I get concerned about the church here in America, how there's more of a dismissal of the word of God. But I think there, here it's interesting that all of a sudden there's this warning about complacency and then judgment's going to come. All of a sudden in the book of Revelation, this seventh letter of lukewarmness and this warning given, you know, you guys want to be entertained. You, you think you're wealthy and you're rich and you have need of nothing but you're lukewarm. And all of a sudden after that, there's going to come the judgment that is described in chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. It's kind of sobering to me to think about those things and, and to discuss those things. And I think that the warning for us, at least for, for me individually, and for my family and for our family here at Calvary Chapel, that we don't want to become sluggish. We don't want to become complacent in the days in which we are living in. I really believe that one of the greatest dangers to our church is complacency. We've been established, we're here, you know, and, and we start to very slowly become sleepy and lethargic and complacent and kind of kick it in cruise control, and this is what we do. And, and we want to guard against that. Now, I know that there are times in our lives and, uh, that we're going to rest and uh, we're going to slow down. We're going to get away this summer. I'm sure that many of you, you got plans. You might have plans for the next couple of weeks to, to be refreshed and renewed. And I'm all for that. But you know what I mean when it talks about becoming complacent spiritually. Don't take a vacation from your spiritual life. And I pray that as we do take those times to rest and be renewed and, and to enjoy things, 
that we would remember that our ultimate rest is going to be in him, to keep him the priority, keep having your devotions. You know, be in that place where you're in reading your Bibles and, and still in fellowship. And, and it's so easy to get distracted in the day in which we're living in. There are all kinds of things that are going on. And it's interesting to be able to talk to other pastors. I've talked to a couple and, and the trend that those of us who've been in ministry for over 20 years, seeing that trend where people are so busy, we don't have time and, and to be in church or be a part of the church. And our kids are busy and they're involved in things. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir here. But may we say we don't want to become sluggish and complacent in the days in which we're living in because we are seeing the storm clouds gathering, aren't we? And we are in very perilous times, but we're living in days where it's interesting that Jesus in the New Testament tells us over and over again to watch, to watch, be sober. Listen, don't let this day overtake you. Be the wise and faithful servant that's looking for the master's return. And the warning given about being sluggish, we're we're not to be sleepy. You're not children of the, the dark. You're children of the day. So be vigilant, Paul writes, concerning the day of the Lord. And we are to be looking and watching and discerning. And I want to always have that before you. It's amazing the things that we're seeing that are happening today that we can look at the Bible and say, yes, the pieces of the puzzle are coming together and we are getting so close to the return of the Lord, even though we don't know the day or the hour. But the Lord's going to come for us, folks. And then there are going to be those that we love and care about that are going to be left to where judgment is going to be poured out on the Christ-rejected world. And one of the saddest verses that we read in the book of Jeremiah that we will get to when we get done with uh, uh, Isaiah is that there is Jeremiah warning the people about judgment was going to come. And they were like, it's not going to come. We're okay. We have the temple. You know, nothing's going to happen to us. And when it began to come, the Babylonians, in their first, you know, wave of captivity, they said it's only going to last a few years. And when finally Nebuchadnezzar came in the third time and destroyed Jerusalem, that there's Jeremiah talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says that summer's over and the harvest is in and we're not saved. So I want to be a part of trying to bring in, being used of God. He's the one that brings in the harvest. But to be used of him, even as Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So this is a very exciting time for us as Christians to say, hey, wake up. And to even to exhort other Christians that perhaps have become sluggish and, and, and lazy spiritually to say, hey, these are exciting times. Things are happening. It is amazing, isn't it? And when I give you updates of what's happening in the Middle East, I hope it's not uh, boring to you, but it's very significant, the things that we're seeing right before our very eyes. It was interesting that on Monday was the 70th anniversary of Israel becoming a nation. And I believe at that time that that we see the budding of the fig tree. And Jesus said, when you see the budding of the fig tree, know that my coming is near. And that started the end time clock going. And it was an absolute miracle 
that they became a nation. And, and just kind of reading about that once again. And, and one of the places that I'd like to go next time that we go to Israel is go to the Hall of Independence where Ben-Gurion uh, made the announcement. As soon as the last British soldiers uh, left the port there that they declared their independence. Uh, there was a plan by the United Nations uh, that there would be a little strip of land in the desert given to the Jews and then um, the other part would be given to the Palestinians. There would be the Jewish state and then there would be the Palestinian state. The Jews said absolutely after the atrocities of World War II. Here they are. It's interesting that if you read the diaries of Ben-Gurion who was in New York after World War II was over that he said it's not over for us. Six million of us were killed, but we still don't have a homeland. We haven't for, for 2,000 years. So as the British came up with the British mandate and they pulled out eventually and, and, and there was the Arab nation saying, we're going to wipe out Israel. We don't agree with that. Uh, God preserved them. But even as Ben-Gurion on May 14, 1948, 70 years ago, was declaring independence, it was an absolute miracle that we're going to see later in the book of Isaiah that in the last chapter, Isaiah is saying, can a nation be born in one day? A fulfillment of that. And it's interesting that Harry Truman, when he got the papers, you know, to sign on the United States to, you know, to be able to say yes to this plan to the United Nations, that as they brought the paperwork there, that it had in there that the state, uh, the Jewish state shall be established. And President Truman asked them, he said, don't they have a name? And one of the Jewish representatives said, it's Israel. So he crossed it out the Jewish state and put the nation of Israel. He put not only the date that was stamped on there, then he put the time. I believe it was 621 p.m. And why did he do that? Because when you have a baby that's birthed, you not only put the date, but you put what? The time. And that's what he did. Can a nation be birthed in one day? Can it be born in one day? So end time prophecy, we got to keep in mind, because there's a lot of Christians that believe that Israel doesn't play a significant role. And so they hold to the replacement theology. Replacement theology to me is 400-year-old theology. It was back in the days of the Reformation even. And at that time, they thought, you know, Israel's been out of the land 1,600 years. So it looks like they're not going back into the land. No way this is going to happen. The Turks were in power at that time. And, and so it must be that what's going to happen is the church is spiritual Israel. And all of a sudden, the nation is born in one day. So Israel is the epicenter of Bible prophecy. But even as we saw on Monday that the United States moved their embassy to Jerusalem, that the epicenter is not just Israel, but Jerusalem. And now it is being claimed that Jerusalem is the eternal city of Israel. It's being established. The United States has established it. They have put their embassy in Jerusalem. And, and they're ecstatic because now other nations are moving to Jerusalem. Do you know that? 
I never thought that Jerusalem would be divided. There's no real hint of end-time prophecy because what we're going to read here as we continue on, particularly when we get into the triology of chapters 33, 34, and 35, there's a lot of emphasis on Zion, on Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is being established that it is the Jewish city and it is in the headlines today. But even more, the epicenter is going to be the Temple Mount area where the Jews are going to be allowed to build their temple. And the Antichrist is going to come along and bring a peace treaty or confirm a covenant with many that will allow, it seems like, seemingly for them to rebuild their temple. They haven't had a temple for 2,000 years. So what is going to be the trigger for that? So we're seeing things just really come to where that point is going to be, where they're desiring to build that temple. It's going to be there on the Temple Mount. What's going to bring that about? Uh, it's very interesting days in which we're living in. So we watch this, and we know that these things that are being spoken of are going to come to pass, and judgment is going to come. And then in verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. That the time's going to come where God's going to pour out His Spirit on the nation of Israel. Now in Hezekiah's time, there was revival that took place. Matter of fact, um, you can read about Hezekiah's reign in 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20 and then 2 Chronicles chapters 29 through 32. And I love this verse. This is a verse that I've shared with you because it's a verse that the Lord gave to me a couple years ago that when Hezekiah is keeping the Passover and there's revival going on in the land and God is pouring out his spirit on the house of Judah, it says that the hand of God in verse 12 of Second Chronicles chapter 30 was on Judah to give them a singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Every time that we see revival in the scriptures, it is connected to the word of the Lord. God's word being taught. They had runners that were going and delivering the word of God to people. Come and celebrate the Passover. The people were back into the word of God once again. And we see that all throughout scripture. Even as Isaiah was saying here, as we saw a few chapters ago, that in this day when there was a leaving of the Lord, that they were making fun of Isaiah who was teaching precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, and telling them the need of of the word of God being taught in that way. So revival is going to be connected to the importance of the word of God. We see that in the book of Acts. As the number of disciples multiplied, the word of God multiplied as well. So the word of God is very valuable. And that's my prayer is that that the Word of God would be something that the church really gets back to and that pastors behind the pulpit would not be afraid to talk about sin, not be afraid to talk about repentance, not be afraid about talking about godliness and holiness, even as we're going to discuss it as we go through this, but to boldly proclaim the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's Word. So Hezekiah here, as, as all of a sudden they were determined, they were going to keep the command of the, uh, the word of God. And they had a singleness of heart to obey the word of God. And 
the Lord, I said, gave me that verse because I really believe whatever the Lord has for us, listen, because I really believe the hand of the Lord is on us, that we're going to have a singleness of heart to move forward in whatever God has for us at his command, as his directions, as we're, we are directed by the word of God, by the leading of the Lord. It's not going to be, well, let's have a meeting and let's get some of the leadership and let's try to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to move forward. That as we pray and as we go through the scriptures, that we're going to look at whatever God has for us, whatever that might mean for us. And to be able to say, that's good. You know, God is leading us in the singleness of heart that we have as a church to move forward in the things of the Lord in the days in which we are in. But to continue to emphasize the things that we do, and that is teaching the word of God in prayer, in fellowship, and breaking of bread, just as they did in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So here is a revival taking place, and, and then there's going to be uh, judgment, and then uh, God's going to pour out um, his spirit. And we know that's going to be true in the tribulation period. At the end of the tribulation period, that God's going to pour out his spirit on the house of Israel. Their eyes are going to be opened up, even as Jesus said when he wept over Jerusalem, that you know you won't see me any longer until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know that after Ezekiel 38 and 39, at the end of chapter 39, that God pours out his spirit, it tells us, on the house of Israel. So here is uh, this judgment that will come, um, and then the spirit poured out from on high, and they will recognize at the end of the tribulation period when Jerusalem, according to chapter 14 of Zechariah, is about ready to go under, that Joel chapter 2, they call for a feast, they call out to the Lord, and their eyes are going to be opened, and they're going to realize that Jesus was their Mashiach, and God's Spirit is poured out on them. But in verse 16, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and the righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, in a quiet resting places. Though hail comes down on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation. So Isaiah is talking about the peace and prosperity, I believe, that will come in a future kingdom uh, and the blessing of God's spirit being poured out is justice in righteousness in peace and quietness and assurance and security. And that is true when God pours out his spirit on us and us as a church. Verse 20, that, that there's going to be peace in our lives. There's going to be peace in this congregation when we're walking in the Spirit. There's assurance and there's quietness and there's rest. And I think we all want that. Then be sensitive to the Lord in the leading of the Lord. So chapter 33, again, chapters 33, 34, and 35 are this triology that deals with the tribulation period and then the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. We read, Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. So God pronouncing judgment upon Assyria, uh, this seemingly unstoppable army is going to end up being stopped. 
those who have done the plundering are going to be plundered. We're going to see that as we begin to look at chapter 36 and go into chapter 37 here um, when we continue through Isaiah. But in verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, uh, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. As the running to and fro from locusts, he shall run upon them. So when we face the Assyrians in our own lives, what we are to do is seek the Lord and call out to him. And this is the prayer of the people. Now in 2 Kings chapter 18, when the Assyrians were coming, you know what Hezekiah did, even though he was a good king, what he did was he took some of the gold um, from the temple and some of the silver. He, he ripped it off the doorposts of the temple. He uh, would then send ambassadors to go pay off the Assyrians and pay tribute to them to try to stop them. Well, what the Assyrians did, as many of you know, is they took the gold, they took the silver. They were happy to do that, but then they kept coming. It didn't stop them. And you see, it's a very important lesson for us. We just got through talking, if you've been with us, over the last couple weeks in chapter 30 and 31, that here is the Lord telling the, the house of Israel, the, the children of Israel, Israel and Judah, as the Assyrians were coming, they were looking to the Egyptians, right? They were looking to the Ethiopians. They were at one time mighty empires and had mighty armies. They were looking to the fast Arabian horses and the chariots and um, the, the men who were fighting men of Egypt. And so they sent their ambassadors to go and talk Egypt and let's form this alliance and try to stop the Assyrians. But the Egyptians, again, they took their money, their tribute, but they did not help at all. And the Lord was saying, woe to the rebellious children of Israel, for you seek counsel, but you don't come to me. And I think it's really important for us to understand that as the Lord took them out of Egypt, as we read in the book of Exodus, that he took them out by his mighty hand. The plagues came down upon Egypt. They would come out of Egypt. They're backed up against the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, here are the horses and the chariots and the Egyptian army about ready to do them in. And the Lord would open up the Red Sea. The children of Israel cross on dry land. We know the story. And then when the Egyptians tried to cross, the waters receded and drowned them. The Lord had taken them out of Egypt by his mighty hand and defeated them. They were the most powerful empire at that time. And now the, as they went into the promised land, the Lord said, I don't want you, back in Deuteronomy chapter 19, to go back to the Egyptians. I don't want you to go back and multiply horses. I don't want you to go back and look for their wisdom. And here they are. And you recall in chapter 30, you said in quietness and, and it's going to be your strength. And returning to me is going to be your peace and quietness and confidence, your strength. Returning in rest, you shall be saved. And then he said, but you would not come. And I just want to remind us at this point in our study that, listen, there's a lot of voices that are out there. But what I pray is that we would go to God's wisdom, not Egypt's wisdom, the world's wisdom. 
Because Paul says that if you do go to the world's wisdom, to traditions of men and empty deceit and philosophies of men, you are going to get cheated. You're going to get ripped off. And we need to know the word of God for every area of our lives and to go to him. And he promises, as we talked about, as we go to him and as we wait on him, that he will begin to speak to us. He'll say, this is the way, walk in it. And he wants to show himself strong in our behalf. So it's real easy to listen to all the voices that are out there, but we need to line it up with the word of God and, and to go to him for wisdom and to understand that he wants us to come to him. And, and that's what's being spoken of here. As, as we read this, um, they took the enemy, took the gold and the silver, and that's what the enemy will do. Listen, don't try to make a peace treaty with the enemy or with the world because it's going to disappoint you. And they were to turn to the Lord. They found out that Egypt ripped them off and the Assyrians ripped them off rather than waiting on the Lord. Do you realize that Satan, our enemy, that he will offer a whole lot to you. Matter of fact, in the temptation of Jesus, he offered Jesus all the nations. Just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? So the enemy, you know, he'll dangle the carrot. He'll make all these empty, you know, promises and stuff. But we need to be ones that we took to look to him. And the promises of God are true, and his word is true for us. But as we continue in verse 5, the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times. And the strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord, is his treasure. So the, the praise of the people, notice number one, that the Lord is exalted, as we read here. What happens oftentimes when we do face the enemy or we face the Assyrians of our lives is that we end up exalting the problem, don't we? That's something very easily um, done, you know, in our minds that overwhelms us. And I've been there. When there's problems that you begin to exalt the problem and magnify the problem, when we are told in the scriptures we're to magnify the Lord and we're to exalt the Lord. And that's something that uh, the Lord has shown me and continues to show me that in those times, I need to stop. I need to put it aside, whatever is overwhelming me, and that's hard to do. And it isn't just, you know, I snap my fingers and, oh, well, just forget about it. But, Lord, I need to just put that aside, and instead of magnifying it and being so focused on it, I want to magnify you. I want to exalt you. I want to give this to you because I don't know what to do. I need you to help me. Just as we sang tonight, as we were singing, I was thinking, oh, Lord, I do need you every day. I need you every hour. And to begin to magnify him, the mighty God. So the Lord is exalted. Second of all, they look to the, the wisdom of God, and we just talked about that. His wisdom is given to us through his word as he guides us. And then thirdly, they had the fear of the Lord. And that's something that we are to do when we are facing whatever challenges that we have or difficulties in life. There's not a whole lot that is talked about today about the fear of the Lord, is there? 
You don't hear that much. But it's all throughout the scriptures. And, and the fear of the Lord is just having that reverence for God and honor for God and respect for God. And I think that needs to be something that we need to really understand if we're going to have a very successful and mature Christian life. Is part of that is walking in the fear of the Lord. Lord, I honor you. I reverence you. I, I respect you and your word. And that is a treasure to him is what we just read here as we read in verse 6. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. To say, Lord, you are awesome. And the fear of the Lord is saying, I want to do things according to the way that you want me to, Lord, to your ways. You know, sometimes I'll hear Christians say, well, I'm just going to sin and God will just forgive me. I'm going to go ahead and do this. I, I know that maybe God doesn't want me to or his word says not to, but he'll forgive me. That's not walking in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is saying, Lord, that I reverence you so much that I don't want to do anything against your will to walk in disobedience, to walk in sin, to transgress. But Lord, to honor you and how I live my life and how I respond to this which I am facing. And then in verse 7, surely they're valiant ones as we uh, continue reading here. Um, shall cry outside, the ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly, the highways lie waste, the traveling man ceases, he has broken the covenant, he has despised the cities, he regards no man, the earth mourns and languishes, Lebanon is shame and shriveled, Sharon is like a wilderness, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. So here uh, they tried to make peace by paying off the Assyrians. Those ambassadors wept because there's no stopping the Assyrians. And see, if we try to make peace or pay off the enemy or align ourselves with the world, eventually, listen, there's going to be weeping. There's going to be weeping in your life and great disappointment. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff, and you shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burning of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall burn in the fire. Hear you who are afar off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. Interesting here. In, in God's time, he will rise up and bring judgment, speaking of, of the Babylonians eventually that will be coming against Jerusalem um, for the near fulfillment. The tribulation period is what we see here that when Jerusalem again, according to Zechariah chapter 14, is about ready to go under by all the nations. When we get to chapter 34 next time, the judgment of the nations is going to be told to us what's going to happen during that time. But this is what's going to take place, and he will rise up. And notice here, verse 13, I find it interesting. Here, you who are afar off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. So there's a near fulfillment. There's those afar off fulfillment that will take place in the tribulation period. And the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has ceased. The hypocrites, uh, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? When God rises up and shows himself strong, the sinners and the hypocrites were terrified because they realized 
that he is the true, awesome, mighty God. And who among you shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Well, verses 15 and 16 are going to tell us here. But I do want to say this, that when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, the last verse of Hebrews chapter 12, which we'll finish next month, that it tells us that our God is a consuming fire. Interesting. Fire does two things, right? Number one, fire destroys. And as oftentimes the fire here being spoken of, of judgment, that, that it's speaking of that. But fire also in the scripture that we see at times, and we've seen it in Isaiah, also refines. So do you find yourself in the fire? And oftentimes what will happen with Christians when they find themselves in the fire is they'll, you know, begin to fold and, and their spiritual life begins to burn up rather than allowing the Lord to refine you. Some of us remember that old song, Refiner's Fire. Make me like you, Lord. Refiner's Fire. And, and it was a popular song and we sing it, but in the trials and the fiery situations that we find ourselves in, listen, stay close to the Lord because he wants to do a refining work in you. And just as that goldsmith or silversmith would heat up the metal and, and the dross would come up and they would you know, scrape off the impurities, the dross, until that silversmith could see his reflection in you know, that, that liquid metal that he's melted, that he's heated up, the goldsmith with the gold. And you see, that's the work that God wants to do. And the refining of our lives oftentimes take place in the fiery difficulties that we go through. But let him do that work. Trust him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were dropped into the burning, fiery furnace. You know the story of Daniel chapter 3. And it was Nebuchadnezzar that said, turn the fire up seven times more than normal. How do you do that? I don't know. But he was angry. And they dropped him in, and Nebuchadnezzar's down looking in to the furnace, and he says, how many guys did we throw in there? Three, O king. Well, I see four, and the fourth is like the Son of God. And they're not hurt, and they're not burning up. And he ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out of the burning, fiery furnace. And they weren't burnt. The only things that were burnt, that the ropes that had them bound up. You see, they were with Jesus. And in the fiery furnace that you find yourself in, where you feel like that this situation or the enemies just throw me in that furnace to burn me up and do me in, that know this, that the Lord is with you. And as you trust him and look to him, listen, the only thing that's going to burn up are the things that need to burn. And anything that has you tied up that's keeping you from being fully surrendered to him, anything that's keeping you from a life that is really desiring to follow after him, those things that cause us to be sluggish and lazy and bring into our lives that take us away from the Lord or the wisdom of the Lord. Those things are what burns up. Those things that bound us in our walk with the Lord. But he will never leave you or forsake you. But he will refine you. 
And it's not an easy process, but I know the most difficult times of my life and in ministry that the Lord has done a refining work in me, and I know he has more to do. But I've learned this, that Lord, as I trust you and look to you, that you will be faithful. And you're going to see me through and do a refining work in me. And it comes through the fiery situations of our lives. And maybe there's some of you that you're going through that right now. The Lord hasn't left you. But he's going to do a refining work in you. A thing of beauty. Where he sees that you are going to be a useful vessel for him. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time. and Lord, I just pray that you would... Help us to keep our eyes on you and not chase after the world's wisdom and the enemy making peace treaty with him, compromising, but Lord, that we would walk in the fear of the Lord, just reverencing you and that awe and knowing that you're true and looking to your wisdom and exalting you. Father, we live in a day where we can very easily, all of us, I'll, I'll speak for myself, that we can become complacent and lazy and have that tendency. And we don't, Lord. Because we see the events around us that are taking place that causes us to say we need to be, even as Paul said in Romans 13, to high time to, to, to be awake for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Even as Peter said, as we see these things, what manner of man or women should we be of holiness so Lord we want to continue to be refined by you to trust in you to have the word of God that is touching our hearts in every way to be used by you Lord to our families and those that are linked to us in our lives and Lord, I pray that here that we would be pleasing to you in what we do and as the hand of the Lord is on us, your hand, Lord, that we would have a singleness of heart, to have a desire to obey you and know you and to walk with you. We may not be the most popular church or we may not be the happening church. Um, the world certainly isn't going to like us, but Lord, we want to, to please you because that's what matters. So Lord, may we, this summer, as we enter into the summer season, as we take those times of being restful and getting away and being with family and being renewed and all those times that we need, we wouldn't become sluggish spiritually. But truly, the rest that we have every day of our lives is we rest in you to love you, to walk with you, to draw closer to you. Lord, I know that there's, uh, again, many kids that are graduating this weekend and next weekend. And so, Lord, I pray for your blessing upon them and their families, their parents. It is an exciting time. And thank you so much for our young people that they would know that you want to do so much in their lives. Lord, we pray for Vacation Bible School, that you would help us to get ready. And Lord, we're going to do our best and commit the rest, that you would prepare those kids to come, many of them, 
more than we expect, exceedingly abundantly, that we can give them the message that God created them and loves them and has a plan for them. I thank you for the volunteers and, and all here that are praying and help supporting and those who support the church so we can get the things that we need to to invest in the kingdom. I thank you for those who support here so we can have the radio program and, and the equipment to be able to broadcast not only here in Colorado but on the East Coast. And I thank you for those who pray and those who support that we can continue on in things of the Lord. So, Father, we want to be good stewards of what you've given to us in these days that we're in. And, Lord, we want to invest in what you are doing in every way. So, Lord, guide us and direct us. Father, bless everyone here as we go our way. We look forward to coming together again on Sunday morning as we continue in, in the book of Hebrews. And Lord, being encouraged and edified in the word of God. So we just commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God is good. Would you please?